Hi, you're listening to the Zoe Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Zoe Fellowship exists to have fellowship with God and with one another and to extend that fellowship to others through the work of Jesus Christ. This week's sermon is from Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, and is preached by Pastor Paul Hong. Due to the ongoing pandemic, Zoe Fellowship Sundays have moved online until further notice. Search for Zoe Fellowship in the YouTube search box and subscribe to our channel for updates and join us for new messages every Sunday at 1 p.m. We are in Genesis uh, chapter 12, starting in verse 10, uh, and we're going to read through verse 20. This is Genesis 12, uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, uh, reading through verse 20. Read along with me. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, his, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is God's word. Um, so in the early 2000s, I uh, w- had joined this missions organi- organization in Atlanta, Georgia, called YWAM. Um, and they do this uh, sort of training for about uh, like a six-month training process uh, where about three to four months you train. You go through these like training process, obviously. Um, and then they send you off for two to three months to uh, short- for a short-term mission trip overseas. Uh, two to three months is technically short-term. Two years is technically short-term. What's considered long-term now is anything more than two years. So that being said, um, so I went with this team to Santiago, Chile, and uh, my team leader was this uh, woman. And uh, about halfway through the trip, uh, she w- we were having like a team prayer meeting, and uh, she shared that she was afraid of getting sick, right? That she was fearful and anxious that she was getting sick. She was, she was starting to have a headache. Her nose was a little runny. Um, but she shared with us that before the trip began, she had prayed to God and that the God had promised her that she would not get sick on this trip, that, she, that he would protect her and shield her from any illness that might ha- happen during the trip. Um, and so how she worded that, right, God promised me that I wouldn't get sick, would protect me, um, was a bit confusing for me. My theology is a bit different. I don't know that God uh, actually makes these sort of personal promises to us like this, right? I believe God has promised things in his word already um, and that some of these promises are coming to, fru- coming to fruition today, but, um, but in terms of these kind of promises that I'm going to protect you individually, I'm not sure that that necessarily happens. So I was a little concerned about her theology. I was concerned about her health, obviously. Um, but the, the biggest thing I was concerned by was this, was that she was starting, uh, as she shared with the group, she was starting to doubt God, that God was faithful, that he would protect her, 
that he even loved her, right? Because she was starting to get sick a bit, or she thought she was. Now, fortunately, I don't think that she actually did get sick, if I remember correctly, but, um, but, she, but that's what she shared with us. And that was very concerning to me, because what her theology and how she read the Bible suggested to her was that God is able to keep promises, but he didn't, or he broke his promise, right? And then he shared that with us, and now we have team members who also might start thinking that God will break his promises to us, right? And I wonder if that's the same with you. Um, maybe I, I haven't talked to a lot of you and talking about this kind of thing. Are you fearful that God is going to break his promises to you or to, or to us? Now, I know for me, yeah, sometimes I do, right? It's not exactly the same as uh, my team leader from this mission trip, but sometimes I do. For me, however, it's more when I fall into patterns of sinfulness, right? When I start indulging the flesh, um, and I start thinking, did I sin too much? Did I cross a line? Is there a way back now for me? But what God's word promises me and tells me every time I fall into these same fears and failures, let me read some of the scriptures I run to. In 1 John 1, 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in John chapter 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they will follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of uh, the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you temp be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Right? These promises in God's word help me to fight sin and temptation in my life and affirms to me that uh, through, God, through Jesus, through his sacrifice, I can be forgiven as long as I confess my sin to him. So I tell you those things both to encourage you and to show you what God is revealing to us through his word today. Amidst fear and failure, God will always protect his promises. God will protect his promises. If you remember from last week, we uh, began the story of Abram in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord appears to him while he's living with his family in this place called Haran. Uh, his father had taken there from the land of Ur. It's like sort of on the north side of the Mediterranean. Um, they kind of settled there. But then the Lord appears to Abram when he's in Haran and tells him uh, to leave everything behind, right? Leave his family, his nation, his tribe, all of that behind and to go to a land that God will show him, right? And God makes these astounding promises to Abram, right? He says uh, that he'll make him a great nation. He'll bless him and give him a great name that he could be a blessing to others, that those who bless him will be blessed and those who dishonor him will be cursed, right? And, and through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Those are amazing promises that God gives to Abraham. And so Abram, taking his wife Sarai and Lot, his nephew, they leave Haran. They start heading south into the land of Canaan. This is the promised land, right? And so they set off and journey through Canaan where God shows him sort of, sort of like a house tour, like this, this is all yours. This will be for your offspring, right? Your children and your children's children. And as Abram is walking through surveying the land um, uh, that God has promised him, uh, he builds altars to worship the Lord and call upon his name, which is amazing because his family probably comes from a history of uh, moon god worshipers. And this is kind of where we left off. We left off with Abram uh, heading further south 
through Canaan to the land of Negev, where, uh, where that's right between the border of Canaan and Egypt. And this leads us to verse 10. And so uh, read verse 10 with me. It says this. Now there was famine in the land, uh, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Stop there for a second. So Abram, first of all, he leaves the land of Canaan into Egypt, right? Uh, God does not tell him to do that. Uh, there are times where God tells people to leave one place to go to another, but this doesn't happen here, right? And which could be an issue, right? He's not listening to God for whatever reason. Um, however, he does leave for practical purposes. There's a famine, right? There's a huge famine in the land. And so he decides, okay, let's just go down south. Okay, there's some food there maybe. And so he heads south towards Egypt to live there as a sojourner, basically a foreigner, a traveler in the land uh, because of this famine. Now, Abram, fearing for his own life, right, as, right as they're about to enter into Egypt, uh, he t develops a strategy to save his own life. He's scared because he knows that he's married to Sarai. Sarai is a beautiful woman. And so these Egyptians, if they see Sarai and see that she's a beautiful woman, will take her. And in order to take her, right, uh, they have to kill him because he's her husband. But Abram, because he fears for his own life, says, okay, you know what? Sarai, tell them that you are my sister, right? Because if he's his sister, there's no reason to kill him. He's, he's, Sarai is no longer in the bonds of matrimony, right? Uh, they're no longer married, and, or they're not married, so technically uh, she should be able to go, right? And he says to do that so that it might go well with me for your sake. And so if Sarai is a sister, again, no need to kill him. But if Sarai is his wife, then his, his death frees her to become a wife of well, some Egyptian. Now, technically, Abram wasn't lying. Sarai is actually his half-sister. His, uh, their father is the same, though they have different mothers. But the text doesn't point to Abram and his actions in a, in a positive light, right? This isn't something that the Lord uh, approves of. He was definitely hiding the truth, and he did it out of fear for his own life. Interesting, right? But then this is, but then it continues. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Egypt saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Okay, stop there for a second. So Abram calls it, right? These Egyptians, they see Sarai, and she's beautiful, and there's these Egyptian princes apparently see her, and they tell Pharaoh, the, 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 the leader of Egypt, how beautiful this woman, Sarai, is. And so Pharaoh takes her in, into his house. And that basically means that he's going to take her as his wife. Now, the text doesn't, isn't very clear that they necessarily had intercourse, right, that they laid with each other. Um, and I bring that up because... Um, uh, there are a lot of commentators who sort of disagree on this. And the reason why that matters is because is, is the dignity of Sarah actually, or Sarai, actually preserved here from Pharaoh? Uh, maybe not. Maybe it is. Either way, it seems that she just passively accepted her sentence, that she is technically Abram's sister and therefore uh, could be taken. And, and Pharaoh deals well with Abram, meaning he, Abram becomes very rich because of Sarai, right? There, 
uh, Pharaoh pays Abram a handsome dowry to uh, have uh, Sarai as uh, Pharaoh's wife. And so because of this, he deals well. He becomes very rich. And not only that, he's accepted right, by the Egyptian society, by the Egyptian Pharaoh. And so he's no longer a sojourner in the land. right? He's not a foreigner to them anymore. He's like, oh, this guy's a super rich guy. He's going to live with us because look how beautiful his wife or his sister is. He's married to Pharaoh now. He's part of the family, one of us. It's basically what uh, he's saying. So he's accepted into this new foreign land. But in doing this, right, he loses his wife. And in losing his wife, the promise of offspring, right, the Lord's promise of offspring to Abram and Sarai becomes threatened. That's what's at stake here. But then verse 17, right, what happens? The Lord intervenes here. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his wife with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did, she, why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So the Lord, he intervenes here for Sarai's sake. Abram doesn't intervene for Sarai, but the Lord does, showing how much he actually cares about Sarai, that, she, or that he has not forgotten her, right? He afflicts Pharaoh with plagues because he has taken Sarai for his wife, right? And this should sound familiar for these readers, right? Remember, Moses is the author of Genesis. He's telling the story to the people who are maybe wandering through the desert at the time. And this must give some sort of identification with Abram, right? The, their ancestor in the faith, especially. Because here's this Pharaoh, and God has delivered Sarai, his wife, his people from the Pharaoh, just like they, they were, right? It's sort of a pre-exodus, if you will. But then Pharaoh, he calls on Abram because of these plagues, and he apparently has connected the dots between this, what was happening, these, these plagues and, and, and Sarai. Uh, no, the text doesn't tell us uh, how exactly he found out, but the point is he did find out, right? He connected the dots. And then he rebukes Abram for deceiving him for taking another man's wife. Now, this is interesting, especially because of the language being used. The thing he says to him is this, what is, that, what is this that you have done to me? And this is an echo from the Garden of Eden. Abram suddenly becomes this new, uh, new Adam, if you will, right? Like, the, this, is, these, this is the word, the, the question, the very question that the Lord asks Adam and Eve. What is this you have done? Right? What have you done? And in the same way, Pharaoh, prophetically almost, is saying the same thing to Abram, rebuking them. What is this you have done? And then we see this. He says, uh, and he gets expelled from Egypt, right? He, uh, and, and how he's expelled, Pharaoh tells him this, take her and go. Take your wife, take your possessions and go. Now, this is also familiar because this is how the Lord talks to Abram, the very uh, previous passage, right? To take your things, take all that your possessions and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And so the, Abram, he takes his wife, all his possessions, his servants, all those things, and he goes into the land that the Lord is going to share him. But instead of uh, optimism and promise, power, calling, instead of these things, he's told, take her and go in shame. Right? This whole thing, this whole passage is marked in shame and failure and fear. Right? There's echoes of, of the past, but like distant echoes that are 
not necessarily good. And this is kind of where this passage ends, right? They end up leaving Egypt. But what's crazy is the point of this passage is that amidst fear and failure, God protects his promises, right? And, and one, one, some of the things we can learn from this is this. First of all, fear often leads to failure. Okay, fear often leads to fear. Out of fear for his life, right? As opposed to the faith that God, or faith in God that led him into the promised land, into Canaan, right? Abram tries to deceive the Egyptians and Pharaoh. And, and you can see that this is sort of a pattern that we often fall into in our own lives, right? When we fall into fear, maybe fear of losing um, some material possessions or our jobs or reputation, um, when we fall into fear, we often fall into sin because we try to find a way out, right? So on one level, when we see this story about Abram and his fear, I think, I think we can kind of understand, right? We have some empathy. We have all felt fear of losing something of value to us. And so we are more understanding about what he did. But at the same time, uh, we've never been, most of us, I assume that most of us have not been in a, in a situation where our lives depended on it, right? That our lives were being threatened because of a choice we had to make. And out of fear, we chose our own life over somebody else or something else, right? For something of value. So I think because of that, like we are, we're fearful enough to lie to our parents to avoid punishment, right? But, um, so I think we, it's easy for us to be more understanding about somebody who fears for his own life in a situation like Abram's. But at the same time, we have to call this as it is, okay? When we see this, we're not supposed to almost empathize. We're supposed to kind of be like cringing, right? He gave up his own wife. Abram is a coward, right? This was a huge act of cowardice. Like we were praising Abram in the last passage, right? His courage to leave everything comforting behind, right? Like uh, his father's family, his nation into a foreign land with a foreign God. But now he's a coward. We see him, right? It's, he's exposed. What's interesting is in the, uh, the Merriam-Webster dictionary, coward is defined as someone who shows disgraceful fear. It's not just fear, but disgraceful fear or timidity. And, they sh and the, the example that they kind of use is a, a, for a coward is a military deserter, somebody who deserts his position because he wants to avoid some hazardous duty, as, uh, that it, it, as the law kind of points out. But, and I didn't actually know this until I was looking it up, but a deserter during a time of war can actually be eligible for the death penalty. They can die. They can be killed, right? For, uh, they can have capital punishment on them. And, and that's pretty wild to me when you think about it, because you can be given, the, in, in our country at least, you can be given the death penalty for being too scared to do something. That's, that's, that's pretty wild, isn't it? You can be too scared to do something, and so they'll kill you for it. And I hope that, what I'm saying there is that I hope I can highlight to you how fatal fear really can be. That's the idea here. Because think about this, if our faith is under constant attack by the enemy, whether it be sin or the world or the devil, how vigilant and courageous must we be when faced with our hazardous duty of loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves, to fight temptation and sin in our lives. Desertion in the military might bring de the death penalty, but think what, about what Jesus says. He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, who can destroy both soul and body in hell, right? This is wild. Like we 
have to be more courageous, more vigilant than those who are courageously and vigilantly going overseas to fight in wars for our country. We must be more vigilant, more courageous than even that uh, in order for us to continue in, in a life of faith. We cannot be cowards in our faith. But this cowardice on Abram's part not only threatens his life, but the very blessing of offspring that God has promised. And this leads us kind of to our second point that the blessing or blessing in general is often, is often threatened by failure, failure to obey. Uh, God's promise to bless Abram and Sarah with offspring is threatened when Abram gives his wife away to failure out of his fear, out of, his fear of losing his life. What he gained in wealth and riches and acceptance by their society, uh, he threatened to lose because of his failure to trust God, to protect him and the promise that he gave him, right? Sin has the enticement of the world and its riches and acceptance. But in sinning, you threaten to lose intimacy and blessing with God. The allure of the world is that what it offers is right now, right? It's right now which we, we understand, I think, in this society that we live in. When God promises to make him a great nation, give him a great name, to bless those who bless him, to curse those who dishonor him, to give a promised land to his offspring, his children, you can kind of see that those blessings are, are long-term, right? This far in the distant future, right? And, so, and, and some of these promises are just impossible. Abram and Sarai are old. They're in their 60s and 70s. And uh, Sarai is barren, right? She can't even have children. It's impossible. It's, it's ludicrous. But what we can learn from this in order to avoid failure, sometimes the long game, looking at the future, the blessing that's held there for us, that's what helps us to avoid the pit of failure. Sin often affords us short-term uh, fleeting pleasures. It's, it's fun for a little while, but much like an addicting drug, you have to keep going back to it over and over again until it kill you, kills you. And while the world might accept you because of this, that you join in their debauchery, Look at what you lose. Abram was given a very handsome dowry for Sarai. He was made very rich and wealthy, and he was no longer a sojourner in Egypt, right? Pharaoh dealt well with him because of Sarai. But now Sarai is gone. No chance at having the offspring to inherit an entire land, to have a great name, to be a great nation, to be a blessing, right, to all the families in the world. The world might accept you because you've joined in on their fun, but what did it really cost you? Did you think about that? But in spite of all this, right, the kind of overarching point is this, right, that amidst this fear and cowardice, amidst failure and sin, the Lord protects his promise, right? The Lord protects his promises. God's intervention uh, in protecting and preserving Abram and Sarai's marriage is proof of God's power to protect his promise to bless them with offspring. Imagine hearing this um, from Moses or reading this while you're uh, wandering the desert, right? After being delivered out of slavery from Egypt. Imagine the hope that it must have given the readers and the hearers of this word. Despite being enslaved in Egypt, despite wandering this de desert, despite all the anxious fears after failing over and over and over again, to know that the promised land is still promised to them. That's still theirs. 
that their God has not forgotten them or his promises to them. That's the hope that they have. And this is exactly how we should feel too. We are sinful, fallen, cowardly creatures who continue to take control of our own sinful desires. We try to take control of our destinies and divert away from the calling that God has called us to, uh, to pursue our selfish desires. We cower away from the spiritual warfare that is constantly being awaged on us. And we desert each other in times of need. We fall prey to the world's acceptance and indulgences to satisfy those little short-term cravings at the infinite blessing in Christ. But despite all that, this is the point, despite all of that, all that fallenness and brokenness and fear and failure, in Christ, all of God's promises of blessings are guaranteed. Like, let me, let me tell you why this is really important and the, the underlying reasoning behind that is because, see, God keeping his promises has really nothing to do with us. Like, look at us. Like, just like I said, we are cowardly creatures. We sin, we rebel against God. We look at Abram, he's a coward. Why did God choose Abram? He's a coward. And we're the same, that's the, that's the idea, we're cowards. We fall away, we sin, we uh, reject our calling and doubt his promises and protection. But the reason, so, so God has no reason in us, at least, to, to do what he's doing. But why does he do it? Because of this, because God values his word. God values his word. It's the reason why everything exists, right? Jesus is the word become flesh. The reality is that God is keeping his word to Abram and to us. He values his word. So when God speaks and when he makes promises, we can count on him because how much he values his word. Look at Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the shower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Right? It'll go out and accomplish the very purpose that God sent out his word to do. And then look at Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable nature, character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What is this saying? As God's word goes out, he makes promises, and those promises will uh, come about, right? He wills them to promise because his word has power. He said, let there be light, and what happened? It wasn't like it waited around, light appeared, right? That's exactly what uh, Isaiah is talking about. And then Hebrews is saying that when God makes a promise, he promises, he swears by himself. In the same way we say, I swear to God. I swear to God this is true. Well, who is God gonna swear by if he's trying to make a promise to us or say something is true? He has to swear by himself because there's no other name greater than God's name. And so he makes their promises. And why does he do this? Because he desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. The heirs of the promise, that's us. We have inherited the promise 
right? And he wants to show the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. And so that we who have fled for refuge, meaning we've come to Jesus, we've come to God for refuge, we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And so because of God's word, because he values his word, that he can swear by himself that his promises will follow, he'll follow through on his promises, we have a hope set before us that we ought to hold fast to. So be encouraged, right? We serve a God that values his word, that in spite of us, our own plans and purposes, our own fears and failures, God keeps his promises.